and turn in your Bibles to Hosea chapter 13, chapter 12, rather. And um, if you are new to the Bible, you can find the book of Hosea in your table of contents and find the page number and uh, then go to chapter 12. We are sort of closing out Hosea over the next couple weeks. We've been uh, just traveling, journeying, studying this ancient book. And uh, today we look at chapter 12. So let's actually start with the last verse of chapter 11. And let me read through the end of chapter 12. Just follow along in your Bibles as I read. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies. And the house of Israel with deceit. Little quick note here. Ephraim and Israel are synonymous terms. So when you see Ephraim... It's another name for Israel. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried off to Egypt. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return. Return and hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for God. A merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. I am the Lord your God. From the land of Egypt I will again make you dwell in tents, as in the days of the appointed feast. I spoke to the prophets, it was I who multiplied visions, and through the prophets gave parables. If there is iniquity in Gilead, they shall surely come to nothing. In Gilgal, they sacrifice bulls. Their altars are like stone heaps on the furrows of the field. Jacob fled to the land of Aram. There Israel served for a wife, and for a wife he guarded sheep. By a prophet, the Lord brought up Israel out of Egypt, and by a prophet he was guarded. Ephraim has given bitter provocation, so his Lord will lead his, leave his blood guilt on him, and he will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you open our eyes to the truth that is in this uh, text this morning. Uh, we are entering into something that is very old, uh, a, a culture that is very removed uh, from our culture a time period that uh, really looks nothing like our time period, issues that they were facing that we wouldn't ever dream of facing. Yet at the same time, their problem is really the same as ours. And that's a, that is that they were drifting away from the truth of your word. God, as we explore this, we ask that you don't just help us to understand what they were going through, but that you help us to apply this to our life and our world today. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. How many Cheese Curls fans do we have in the house? All right, I figured there would be more than that. Cheese Curls, man, like they're amazing. Um, My love for Cheese Curls goes uh, way back. I I remember asking for Cheese Curls before I could even pronounce Cheese Curls. I distinctly remember saying, can I have Cheese Curlers? And I remember feeling so stupid as that word came out, like, that's not right, but it slipped. Um, I can't remember a particular instance, but I'm sure there were times where my mom, uh, where, where I wanted cheese curls before dinner, and my mom uh, wouldn't allow me to have cheese curls. 
before dinner. I actually think I remember a ton, but you know how sometimes we're not sure if, what, if we remember what we think or we remember? Scary, isn't it? Anyway, um, why is it that a good mother would not allow their child to have cheese curls before dinner? Any thoughts? Is this an issue? Okay. All right, all right. Hey, we're together. I get it. I understand. Um, my wife still doesn't allow me to have cheese curls before dinner. Why is that? Well, let me tell you why. Um, because the child would fill up on these uh, puffins, these little things, um, these, I don't, know, I don't know what it is. I'm not like a, uh, uh, I'm not like a, a, a foodie here. Is, it a pu- is that the correct term, Melissa, a puffin? <laughs> okay. Um, if you have any questions about nutrition, uh, she's a person to ask. So find out later what a cheese curl actually is from Melissa. Um, but anyway, all I know is that they're filled with air. And you eat these things, and they make you feel full. Now, if a child were to eat a whole bunch of these cheese curls... Uh, they would feel full by the time dinner came, and they would not want to eat the, the meat and potatoes and green beans that had been prepared for them. Now, what is the problem with that? Here's the problem. A, a, a dinner is not just designed to make us full. A dinner is designed to be nutrition for us. A dinner, dinner is designed to, to give us something that will sustain us, that will give us health, that will give us life. And so if a child then fills up on cheese curls and then they go to the dinner table feeling stuffed, feeling full, and they don't want to eat the food that's placed in front of them, the problem is that they're going to miss that which will truly sustain them. And in 30 minutes from now, dinner's put away, and guess who's hungry? Little cheese curl head over there. (laughs) Filling Filling up on air. Your belly's full of nothing, and you're hungry again. Now, this isn't a, we're not talking about like physical health today, although um, that may be very applicable for some people. Don't eat cheese curls before dinner. Uh, Where we want to talk about today, though, is the spiritual significance that that points us toward. We want to talk about our spiritual health. And I think you'll see how this relates. Let me just dive right in, and then we're going to talk about um, Jesus and cheese curls in just a little bit here. Uh, so first of all, in verse 2 of chapter 12, it says the Lord has an indictment against Israel. Now that word indictment, everybody say indictment. That's a legal term. So the picture is you are the defendant. Anybody ever been in court? All right, you don't have to say if you were guilty or whatever. You're the defendant. And there's the judge. You look over, there's no prosecutor. Where's the prosecutor? Ah, the judge steps down and becomes the prosecutor. That's a bad thing, all right? The judge says, I have an indictment. I've got a problem with you, all right? I've got an offense against you. So this is what's happening. He's, he's saying, I have a problem. I have, this is an indictment against you. I have an, I have an offense against you. So what is the offense? Let's get into it. Look at, skipping back, chapter 11, verse 12, Ephraim has surrounded me with lies, Israel with deceit. Those are synonymous terms. So Ephraim and Israel, synonymous. Lies and deceit, synonymous words. What he's saying is, is Israel, you guys are like a bunch of liars. You are filled up with falsehood. You're filled up with no truth. And then he likens that in chapter 12, verse 1. He says, Ephraim feeds on the wind. They fill up on air. The picture here is, is you, you step outside on a breezy day and you open your mouth and you're trying to fill up off of the wind. And so then we enter, we come to the table with our bellies full of cheese curls, just puffins, all right, just air. We come to the table and what's set before us is meat and potatoes and green beans. And we're like, I'm full. I don't need to eat that because I'm, all, I'm coming to the table full. So do you see what's happening here? They're, they're, they're coming to the gathering of the saints full already. They don't feel a sense of like desire, a, a sense of need, a sense of hunger for anything. They come filled up with something already. They come to the table, to the Lord's table, and, and they have no need to take of the, the bread and the cup because they come already full of something. 
They're filled. They don't feel like they have, a, they don't have this need to, to ingest and to take in the body and the blood of Christ. They're good to go. But what are they filled up with? The answer is cheese curls. It's air. It's wind. It's nothing. It's like cotton candy. There's, it's, it's, it's actually less sustaining than cheese curls and cotton candy. It's wind. Their, their belly is full, but it's full of gas. So God says, I have an indictment against you. Now, what is the filling? What is the wind? It is a lack of truth. They're filling themselves on lies. They're filling themselves up with falsehoods. Let me show you three ways that they are uh, buying into lies and filling themselves up with lies. The first way is right there in verse 12. They're lying to God. He says, Ephraim has surrounded me with lies. Me. This is, a, this is an, offense, an offense against God. So Ephraim, later he says, you're building altars, you're sacrificing bulls, you're doing all of these spiritual things, you're creating representations of Jesus, you're writing books about Jesus and, 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 and making images of Jesus and movies about the crucifixion and, and it's making you feel very good and feel very close to Jesus, but it's all fake. Your representations of Jesus are like golden calves that you're bowing down to. Let me give you an example of this. Um, how many of you were out of uh, diapers by the time The Passion of the Christ came out? All right, all right, so about half of us. That's good, that's better than I, I was holding my breath on that one a little bit. I remember going to The Passion of the Christ when it first came out, and, um, and uh, specifically some, some folks that I went with and then some others that I knew went just really moved during the movie. Um, and it did absolutely nothing to change their life. How many people went and saw The Passion, moved to tears watching this film, and, uh, or, or maybe more recently since it's been on Netflix, like watching it on Netflix, move, moved emotionally, only to then just uh, go and have sex with your girlfriend. Like, it does nothing for you. Um, I've known folks who watch The Passion on Netflix all the time. Like, it's, it's like their spiritual nutrition. They're constantly going back to get, because what they're doing is they're, they're trying to go back to that, that moment of emotion, that moment of, now I'm, this is nothing against The Passion or movies. But what I'm saying is this, is we use things, we find things, whether it's some type of image of Christ, whether it's a movie or a book, we find something that we can say, this is to me like an image of Christ, and it moves me in some way. I feel closer to God in some way. The problem is it doesn't change us. And God says, you have surrounded me with deceit. You're lying to me about your spirituality, about our relationship. You're using things to make yourself feel like you have a stronger relationship with me than you do. So the first way that they're buying into lies is they're lying to God. The second way is they're lying to others. Look at verse 7 of chapter 12. He says, a merchant in whose hands are false balances he loves to oppress. So this is a picture of you going to the deli and you order a pound of ham and so the butcher takes time and, and is slicing the ham, <coughs> excuse me, and carefully weighing it and then wraps it up and gives it to you and charges you for your pound of ham and you go home, put it on your own scale only to discover that the, the, uh, uh, the, the ham that you paid 16 ounces uh, for I'm messing up my words there, but you get the picture. You paid, you paid for 16 ounces. Put on your scale, you find out there's only 14.5 ounces. He was a swindler. He was a cheat. He says, you're, you guys are like merchants, he says, in whose hands are false balances you love to oppress. You love to use business practices to where you cheat people out. And so what they're doing is they're, they're lying to God about their spiritual state, and then in turn they begin lying to others. Now, not only that, look at verse 8. They lie to themselves even. Verse 8, Ephraim said, Ah, but I'm rich. I have found wealth for myself. Remember, back to our prosperity sermon. 
the, when everything is going well in life, often we forget that we have a real spiritual need. He says, I'm rich, I have found wealth for myself in all of my labors. They cannot find in me iniquity or sin. I can't find iniquity. I, I hear what you're saying. I hear that you're, you're saying that I'm not yours, not mine, whatever. But I, I, I look at my life and I look at what I do. I don't see what you're, say, what you're talking about. And he uses these two words, iniquity and sin. Sin, if you've, if you've been in Sunday school uh, as a child, you've, you've heard this word sin before. It's a common word that we throw around here. Um, classically defined as missing the mark, sort of missing the bull's eye. And iniquity is a term that means, uh, or, or, or iniquity pictures sin as perverted behavior. So if sin is sort of this broad missing the mark, Here's the law of God, the holiness of God, and we miss it. Iniquity focuses on behavior. It is a twisted, perverted behavior, the outward actions. What Israel is saying here is they lie to themselves. They're saying, I, I look at what I do. Like, I, I look at my work. I look at my life. look at my worship, and I don't really see what you're talking about. I don't see in me sin and iniquity. I don't really see all of this stuff that you're talking about. This, this is a church where the word goes out, the conviction goes out, and everybody sort of points to somebody else. Man, I know who they're talking about right now. That guy. And then in some way, if the Holy Spirit can work on your life and say, no, he's talking about you, you would say, what? It doesn't make any sense. Like, I'm examining my life. Like, I, I think about my life. and I mean, there are things that I'm not proud of, but I wouldn't call it sin. There are things that I struggle with, but iniquity? That sounds like old school, fundamentalist, weird sort of religion. They're lying to themselves. They're, uh, dude's packaging oil to send off to Egypt. Right there in verse 12. And he's like, not me. He's not, he's not talking about me. Dude's like making uh, covenants with Assyria. Who, me? I mean, I'm looking at what I do. I'm looking at my life. I'm looking at my worship as I build this altar for God. I don't see sin. I don't see iniquity. As a, as a pastor, what scares me is not when people are struggling with sin, and confessing it to each other. What scares me is when we stop calling sin, sin. What scares me is when we say something like, I, I'm, I'm struggling with this, something I'm not proud of, but I wouldn't call it sin. That is horrifying. And this is where Israel was. As God is saying, I will repay you for your deeds. You have lied to God about your false love for him. You have lied to others in your ways, practices of injustice. And finally, you have lied to yourself. And you have told yourself that you don't need God's help. Do you see how they're filled with the wind? They're not coming hungry for God, but they feel full. They've filled themselves on the falsehoods, the lies that they have told themselves. There is no truth in the land. This goes back to chapter 4 when God says, I've got a problem with you. There's no truth in this land. There's nothing true here anymore. Everything is relative. I was listening to a, a, a leader of an organization one time, and he was giving this little workshop, and he was telling, or talking through how he fires people, which is always interesting to hear, like, how you fire people. I've never done it, so I don't know. Uh, John knows. John's fired a few people, so John can tell you how to fire. I think every time I ask John how it's going, he's like, I've got to fire somebody. <laughs> Firing tomorrow, so, oh well. Uh, don't work for John. <laughs> All right, let's close in prayer. 
So this guy was talking about how to fire people, and, uh, and so he's talking about like the process they go through and discipline processes and uh, you know correction or whatever uh, performance reviews and things like that. And, and then finally, after such and such, this many warnings, they'll let him go and got to be firm. And then he tells the story of this one guy that he fired, who uh, was uh, hurt in a he was in a car accident and he was hurt, and uh, said he can't come into work. Week went by, still in bed. A month goes by, he's still in bed, can't come into work. Two months goes by, I'm talking on the phone like, man, I'm like, you know, like still in bed, like my, my whole back is just like I can't move. Three months goes by, in the third month, he's, again, just communicating on the phone like I'm in bed, my, I, I can't move, my back is killing me, it's miserable. And that day, uh, he gets the morning newspaper, there was some event that happened in the town, and guess who's on the front page with his arms like this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the guy that's supposedly in bed, all right, with the, with the broken back. And um, so he calls him up, and he's like, hey, man, come, in, come into the office right now. And the guy's like, oh, I can't move, man. There's no way I can come. He's like, no, I want you to come in now. And, and he's like, I can't. What do you, uh, how can you tell me to come when I can't, when I can't, when I'm in so much pain? He's like, get in here now. I don't care how you get here, just come. So he comes, and Sits down at his desk, and the, this leader puts a, the newspaper on the desk and shows it to him. And he says, clean out your office. And then what he proceeded to say was this. He said, the one thing I fire for immediately, I don't give any, any warning, you get one shot. The one thing I fire for on the spot is lying. I don't care how big it is. I don't care how small it is. If you, if you, if, if you uh, had a ham sandwich for lunch and you tell me you had a turkey sandwich for lunch, <laughs> I will fire you on the spot for lying. Because he says when somebody lies about something little, they're going to lie about something big. And when lying begins, the very foundation for life is destroyed. Now, why is this, how is this applicable um, to us today? Why should we take time to study Hosea chapter 12? We are living in an era in which the very concept of truth is challenged. Like a hundred years ago, or during the birth of the modern era, couple hundred years ago, traditional truths were being challenged with new truths or alternative truths. What's, what's, what's happened today in society is not that we are challenged with different truths, but rather the very concept of truth itself is challenged, which means this, you can believe something, you can have truth I mean, for all I care, you could be a crazy, legalistic, fundamentalist Christian. Believe what you want. Have truth. Fine. But please don't call it an absolute truth. Please don't call it a universal truth. Please don't call it a truth that is binding for all people. So you see, today, the concept, the very idea of truth is something that is foreign, something that is personal, something that is relative. Now, things are relative in life. Um, however, relativism or the worldview which is, is created out of a relative, out of relative thinking says everything is relative. There is no absolute truth. Now, if you're in college or in grad school of some type, you probably would agree or testify to some, to some degree. It's not that we don't enjoy learning or appreciate knowledge, but the idea of a binding moral truth for all people is challenged at an unprecedented, unprecedented rate. Uh, one professor put it like this. He said, today, um, families move 
or families get good jobs so they can move to the best neighborhoods, so that their kids can go to the best schools, so they can get into the best universities, so they can spend $60,000 to learn that there, are, that there is no truth to be had, so that those kids can get degrees, to get good jobs, to move to good neighborhoods, so their kids can go to the best schools, to get into the best universities, so they can learn that there is no truth to be had. He said that is education today. Friends, we are living in an era in which the very concept of truth is challenged. As the indictment goes out against Israel, there is no, tr- no truth in the land. How much more might that indictment come to us? There is no truth in the land. Now, the goal here this morning is not to uh, at all downplay education or anything like that. The goal is to simply say this. We are at a crossroads in our society, and we have a decision as to whether we stand firm on truth and take it to the chin, or whether we allow society to define us. As a society as a whole, we have abandoned truth. So therefore, we debate and we consider the legitimacy of abortion, euthanasia, assisted suicides, sex without marriage. If, if you are at all a church nerd, as I am, meaning you just find pleasure in reading books about church, what you may have found is that authors of every stripe have been writing books and researching, trying to figure out why people don't go to church anymore. So like, for instance, in Europe, uh, if you are under 60, you will be the minority of the minority of the minority of the minority sitting in a pew on Sunday morning. And even out of the, the, the senior citizens who attend church in Europe, only one in ten attend at least once a month. Now, most folks would agree that our culture is usually about 50 years behind where Europe is at culturally. So kind of we're heading that direction. So even in the U.S., we've seen a decline in church attendance, especially among those in their 20s. Our church, we, I mean, we in many ways are um, very strange in that we have so many young people in our church. Walk into churches all across America, and you're going to find few people who are in their 30s and in their 20s filling pews. A sharp decline. Now, why is that? So, some people write books and they say, well, it's because church is boring, and so we need to do things to make it more exciting. And so we need to have, uh, we need to have little fog, foggy things. <laughs> and we need to have lights and we need to make it more appealing and maybe some video clips. And like maybe show Dumb and Dumber once in a while, which I actually would appreciate. <laughs> um, maybe, maybe sermons are too long. You know, maybe, maybe we need to cut down the time that we're doing this monologue thing. And maybe it needs to be more conversational and more interactive and less lecture like. It's just too boring. Maybe we need to do less scripture reading because people can't stick with it and their minds start to drift and they get bored. Maybe we have to do less prayers because people get bored during the prayer times. And so, so like, how can we sort of rethink and reinvent church so that it will be more palatable for a generation that is leaving church? That is, that is generally the conversation today in America among pastors. What truths can we make light of so that church will be more palatable? How can we talk about things like sin less? How can we never address eternal damnation so that church then will be more palatable for a generation that doesn't like it? Friends, the reason, the reason there is a decline 
in the Christian faith in America is not because churches are too boring. And let me explain it to you this way. I recently read a story about a guy who was diagnosed with cancer. And after his cancer diagnosis, he sat down with the doctor, and for 45 minutes the doctor talked about his cancer and he talked about his various treatments. Do you think that that guy was bored during that 45-minute conversation? I bet it passed like this. Now, if, if he didn't have cancer, if you don't have cancer, and you're going to sit down with a doctor, and for 45 minutes he's going to talk about cancer and the different types of cancer, and this is, this is a specific kind of cancer, and these are the various ways to treat it. If you don't have cancer, you're not looking at treatment, that actually would be pretty boring. Wouldn't it? I mean, unless you're like into medicine yourself and, and, uh, and you, you, you just are sort of like a, a, a cancer geek maybe, or you just enjoy like, what are the different treatments for cancer? I don't know. But for the most of us, like, if we don't have cancer, we're not dealing with it, like, to sit down with a doctor for 45 minutes and just talk about cancer and treatments, it would actually be kind of boring. But if you have cancer, he's talking about your cancer. He's talking about treatments for your cancer to save your life. 45 minutes would go by like this. So do you see, guys, the, the issue isn't that our sermons need to be shorter. It's not that we need to be, we need to talk about cancer less, so we need to be more, uh, present things in a way that's more palatable, or we, 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 maybe, maybe we shouldn't talk about the reality that we could die. But rather, the issue is that we have a generation of people who have abandoned truth, and they don't believe they have cancer. They don't believe that this word contains the answer to their cancer. They don't believe that the remedy is found here. And so they come and they sit and they go through the motions if they do, and they're bored out of their mind for 45 minutes because they are as one sitting in a doctor's office denying the fact that they have cancer, listening to a doctor talk about their treatments. Friends, at the core, our problem is that we have embraced a gospel of relativism. We've embraced a gospel which says there is no truth. There is no absolute moral truth, at least. And that there is no real such thing as sin and iniquity. And that hell is not a reality. And so we are bored. The first point this passage is trying to make is that there is no truth in the land. The second point that this passage is making is this. No truth in the land led them to abandon the word of God. Let me show it to you. Look at verse, verse 10. God says, I spoke to the prophets. At one time, God spoke through prophets. The very word of God, I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions. And through the prophets, I gave parables if there is iniquity in Gilead, they shall surely come to nothing. In Gilgal, they sacrifice bulls. Their altars are like stone heaps on the furrows of the field. What, what is he saying here? What he's saying, what, he's, what, what he's saying is this. I have spoken to you through the prophets. I've given you my very word through the prophets and through their visions and through their parables. Again, in verse 13, he says, by a prophet you came out of Egypt. By a prophet he was guarded. Like, remember, I have spoken to you. I have given you my word, and you are without excuse. The reason that you are drifting away from truth is not because I didn't speak. God is saying, I spoke. I've given you the word. Yet, in Gilgal, they sacrifice bulls. Their altars, he says, are like stone heaps. I am astonished, God is saying, at how quickly you have turned away from the gospel. I'm reminded here of Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, which says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and you're turning to a different gospel. God has said, I have spoken to you through the word. I have given you the very word of Christ. And I am astonished at how quickly you have turned to another gospel. 
What does that mean? It means this. First of all, it means that there are other gospels out there. Gospel is a word that means good news. So there are other messages out there that come across and sound like good news. So in Paul's day, when he wrote Galatians 1, 6, there, were the, there was the gospel of the Judaizers, those who said you must return to ceremonial laws. There were the gospel of those who said that Christ never came in the flesh. In Hosea's day, there is the gospel of Baal. If you worship Baal, if you pray to Baal, if you build altars to Baal, then he will bless your crops and good things will happen. There were alternative gospels that God's people were turning, to, turning away from the truth of His Word. In our day today, we also have alternative Gospels. We have the Gospel, as we've talked about. We have the Gospel of health, wealth, and prosperity. If you have enough faith, then you'll never be broke in a day, a, a day of your life. You'll never have problems. You'll always have health. We also have the gospel of youth culture, which says, be as young as you can be, and then you will be happy. Hang on to your youth. Um, Hate maturity. Hate growing older. Hate gray hair and wrinkles. Despise these things. Hang on to and lift up youth, and there you will find happiness. So this gospel says just be loose, be free, have a good time, turn up, right? Party, go out, uh, uh, late nights, be young. How does the song go? We are young, set the night on fire. So we go high, I can't hit the note. Ah. I don't even know the words. That like before, something like that, then before, we'll get higher than we were before. I don't know. But man, like that song right there is like the anthem of the gospel of youth culture. Let's be young. And there you will find happiness. We also have the gospel today. We have the gospel of new atheism. Good news, God doesn't exist. We have the gospel of tolerance. If we just simply tolerate each other, we'll have peace. That's so weenie, isn't it? I'll put up with you. I don't like you, but I'll tolerate you. And let's all hold hands and sing Kumbaya. We have the gospel of relativism, which I think is behind all of the other gospels. That there is no absolute moral truth. Truth is gone. Good news. Define your own reality. Be who you want to be. Find a truth that works for you. Sure, creeds, confessions, statements of faith, valuable to some degree. They're bits and pieces of our past. Be who you want to be. And if that means walking away from a confession or a creed, a historic understanding of what the Bible says, then so be it. Now look at verse 7. I want to point something out to you. He says here, he calls them a merchant. Now that word merchant is actually the same word for Canaan. They're sort of interchangeable words. What he's saying is this. Actually, let me back up before I say what he's saying. Um, Do you guys remember back in our Joshua series last year, for those of you that were here, do you remember who Israel was pushing out of the land? It was the Canaanites. God told them to remove the Canaanites from the land. Here he's calling them a Canaanite. He's saying, you have become like that which you once fought against. You were once driving this mentality out of the land. You were once fighting against this worldview. You were once fighting against these concepts and these ideas, but you have drifted, friends, and you have drifted away from the rock-solid truth of the Scriptures, and you have now become, he's saying, like that which you once fought against. What does that mean for us? What it means is this. 
We look across churches today, even entire denominations, and we see this. Instead of the church having an impact in society, society is having an impact in the church. Instead of the church changing society, society is changing the church. And entire denominations are allowing the gospel of relativism into their sanctuaries, and entire denominations are drifting off into oblivion. A little over a year ago, in the summer of 2012, there was an article that was published in the New York Times called, Can Liberal Christianity Be Saved? The entire article was about how churches and entire denominations that have allowed relativism into their sanctuaries, they have allowed uh, society to impact them, they have allowed society to move them, and they've gone with the movement of culture instead of the movement of the Spirit. The article is all about their decline, dropping by the thousands. Why? Because they look like society. There's no reason, reason to go. There's no, I mean, honestly, guys, if I didn't believe what the Bible said, if I didn't believe these things, the claims of Christ, the exclusivity of Christ, the reality of judgment, I would be at home right now grilling bratwurst. I would not be here. This is what he says in the New York Times article. <clears throat> he says, uh, talking about the, the decline and drifting into oblivion, speaking of one specific major denomination in the U.S., he says that this denomination is flexible to the point of indifference on dogma, friendly to sexual liberation in almost every form, willing to blend Christianity with other faiths, and eager to downplay theology entirely in favor of political causes. The reason? They have become like that which they once fought against. They have allowed society to impact them. They have allowed themselves to drift with the norms of society. And then they have uh, thus abandoned the truth. Friends, if we abandon truth, we will die. If we explain away the truths of Scripture to make God's Word more palatable for the lost, we will die. If the norms of society are embraced as our norms, we will die. If we hold our creeds and our confessions and our statement of faiths loosely, we will die. Now, follow me here. The first point in, of this passage is to show that there was no truth in the land. The second point is to show that no truth led them into oblivion. It led them away from the gospel. It led them away from God's Word. Now, what he does as the answer, what he does as sort of application is he doesn't just give points. So, instead of saying, okay, here's the problem, no truth, Here's, the call, or here's what's happened. You've drifted off into oblivion. You've accepted uh, 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 pluralism and relativism. So let me give you three or four points of application to, to put, put this in. What he, do, he doesn't do that. What he does is he actually tells them a story. It's almost as if he says, here's the problem. You've, you've, you've let go of truth. You've allowed society to impact you, and you've become like that which you once fought against. Now, let me remind you of something. Jacob, come on up here. I want Jacob to give his testimony. There's no Jacob for everybody that's looking over to this side. I'm pretending here. So Jacob comes up, and he says, I want you guys to remember the story of Jacob, who was one of the patriarchs, one of the fathers of Israel. He says, I want you to remember the story of Jacob, and I want the story of Jacob to speak to your current situation. So let's look at it. It's right here in the center of the text in verse 2. He says, or verse 3, he says, Jacob, in the womb, took his brother by the heel. Now, what does that mean? So before, uh, uh, twins, okay, in the womb. 
And Esau is coming out. And as Esau is coming out, Jacob says, no, I want to be first. And so he grabs his brother by the heel and says, let me out first. Like, I want to be the oldest. I want to have the blessing. I want to have the inheritance. One theologian said that this term, grabbing him by the heel, is actually a synonymous term with going behind one's back in order to deceive. The idea is that Jacob was a rascal in the womb. All right, he was like a bad dude before he even took a breath. A swindler, a deceiver. And then as his life developed, as a young man, we see that he is a swindler and he is a deceiver as he deceives his brother into selling him the birthright for a pot of soup. And then later he deceives his, his own father to get his father to bless him and get that birthright from him by putting uh, animal hair on his arm so his father could feel it and say, oh yeah. I mean, Esau must have been like one hairy dude, all right? Like bear skin, goat skin, doesn't matter. That's Esau's arm right there. Oh yeah. He was a swindler and he was a deceiver his entire life. But then something happened. Something dramatically happened in Jacob's life and changed him. I want you to see it. It's the next line. He says, in his manhood, in his adulthood, he strove with God or struggled with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed and wept and sought his favor. Now, what's that referring to? It's, it's the most awkward story, I think, in, in the entire scriptures. It's in It's in the book of Genesis, chapter 32. It's awkward because it simply says this. He he went to a certain place, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Strange. Like all night long, we're just like headlocks, and then like this, and then this, and then like all night. Like at at what point might you have thought like four in the morning, like why are we wrestling? (laughs) I don't know but I'm going to keep trying to pin you or something. I don't, know, like, I don't understand ancient forms of wrestling, maybe. But for whatever reason, Jacob thought it was normal. So all night long, he wrestled, he says, with an angel of the Lord, which we believe is Jesus himself. That's the most powerful term to refer to, uh, to God in the flesh before Christ. We call it in theology a Christophany. So it's an actual appearance of the same Jesus that told parables and that stood up against the Pharisees and that raised Lazarus from the dead, appeared thousands of years before and wrestled all night, for whatever reason, with Jacob. All right, now, if I was wrestling with God in the flesh, I don't think it would go very well. Like, I've often thought how I would do in the UFC cage. (laughs) Now, I know some of you think that I could probably hold my own. I probably could, but it's possible I might die within the first two seconds. Um, I can only imagine how I would do if I was wrestling against God in the flesh. Like UFC dudes with the puffy ears, they would have nothing on Jesus, all right? Yet, while Jacob is wrestling with God, it's as if God just kind of holds his power back. He allows Jacob to wrestle with him. He allows Jacob to struggle with him, to push back against him. Friends, those of you that are journeying through something difficult right now, God allows you to struggle with him. He allows you to push back. What a wonderful, gracious God we have. But yet, as the sun rose, Jesus said, that's enough. He said, let me go. And Jacob said, no, not until you bless me. This is what Jesus does. He shows this this micro shadow of the power of God. After a night of wrestling, he touches the hip of Jacob and immediately dislocates his hip. Ball and joint, boom. Boom. For the rest of Jacob's life, he will walk with a limp. Because God in a moment bruised him. God in a moment dislocated his hip. God in a moment touched him with his power. 
Jacob's response is right here in Hosea chapter 12, verse, verse uh, 4. He has two responses, which is interesting to me. The first one is that he prevailed. The second one is that he wept. How did Jacob prevail? Well, he, he didn't win the fight. Not in the sense that he broke Jesus' hip. How did he prevail? He prevailed in the sense that every single one of us prevails after we struggle with God for weeks, for months, sometimes even years. He prevailed in the sense that God dislocated his hip and he finally submitted to Jesus and let him go. He finally submitted to Jesus. He finally said, I'm done. He prevailed. He was victorious in the sense that he finally accepted his defeat. And then secondly, he wept. He wept not because his hip hurt, but rather Jacob wept because now all he had was Christ. Jacob wept because he will now forever walk with a limp that reminds him that Christ is all he has to cling on to. He wept in the sense that he hung on to Christ and said, bless me, show me favor. Friends, what is our response? First, what is Israel's response? God is saying, look, you have struggled with God. God has allowed you to struggle with him. You have fought with God. You've strove with God. But there comes a time when you, when you no longer must act like Jacob, but you must now act like Israel. Because see, what happened in Jacob's life, what changed his life, how he went from a swindler and a deceiver to the father of the nation, was an encounter with Jesus. And it forever changed his life. It was Jesus touching his heart. It was Jesus dislocating his hip, bruising his side. And God is saying to Israel, stop acting like Jacob and start acting like Israel. Walk humbly before your God. Walk with the limp before your God. Submit yourself to Christ. Cling to Christ with all that you have. Realize that He is all that you have, and that if you let Him go, you have nothing. Look at verse 6. He applies it here. He says, So you, by the help of your God, return. How do we return? By God's help. Listen, when, we, when we're doing like the whole reading books, movie thing, just trying to, trying to make ourselves feel, but what we're doing is we're trying to return with our emotions. We're trying to return by eating cheese curls, by filling ourselves with wind. God says, you can't do it on your own. You need my help. So you, with the help of God, return. How does God help you? He dislocates your hip. After some time of struggle, God says, enough is enough, and I am bruising you now. So you return with the help of God. Hold fast, he says, to love and justice and wait continually for, for the Lord. That word wait means to seek after. It means to hope for. It means to expect. What that means is this. Our waiting for God to, change, to help us change is not a passive action on our part. Our waiting for God is an active action on our part. How do we wait on God? How do we seek after God? How do we hope for God with expectancy? This is how. We hold fast to the things of God. We hold fast to the truths of God. We hold fast to His Word. We hold fast to love and to justice. And then we seek Him through the ordinary means that He has given us. We seek Him through reading the Scriptures, His Word, His Word which became flesh and dwelt among us. The very Word of Christ is sitting on this desk right here. We, re we, we seek Him through interacting with His Word, through listening to the Scriptures being preached. We seek Him through 
uh, participating in the sacraments, baptism, and coming to the Lord's table, table and, and say, God, this is like Christ is all I have right now, and I need Jesus in my life. I need His righteousness to fill me, and I need His blood for the forgiveness of my sins. So let's apply this to us today, then we're going to wrap up here. First, does belief matter? Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 and 14 says this. It says, see to it that nobody with an unbelieving heart turns away from the living God. In Hebrews, there's a strong warning. Belief does matter. And if we hold truth loosely, an unbelieving heart will turn us away from God. The answer, the next verse in Hebrews says, but encourage one another daily. Why is it? Every week at the garden, almost every week, I say something like, do lunch together. I want you guys to like get together like throughout the week, all right? Be in a house community. Uh, get breakfast with somebody. Uh, have somebody into your house for dinner. Like pray with somebody early before work. Why do I say these things? It's not because I just want you guys to build friendships. Like to some degree, I could care less if we're like all buddy-buddy friends, all right? As a matter of fact, um, we have... There's so much diversity in our church. Um, we're not going to like naturally necessarily feel like friends with a lot of people outside of this right here. What we're called to is something more than friendship. We're called to watch over one another's souls and to keep one another from drifting away from truth. So he says, as the remedy for the unbelieving heart turning away from God, he says, encourage one another every stinking day. Like if, it's, if, if you wake up this morning and you call the day that we're in today, that's what he's saying. Find somebody to encourage. And encourage them in the way of the Lord. Encourage them to remain in Christ. Encourage them to abide in Christ. Secondly, what should our change look like? Our change that we need in our society a change that we need in our hearts is to simply embrace truth. And we can do this through reading the Scriptures. The, uh, other books, helpful books, can be very useful for us. They're on our website, uh, thegardenbaltimore.com. There's a list of helpful books that you might be able to find and benefit from, resources to encourage you in the truths that are found in God's Word, uh, devotions with each other, personal devotions by yourself in the mornings or in evening, whatever time works for you. Get in the Word. Pray. Ask God to show you the truth of His Scripture. If you have children or if you are married, do, do devotions together as a family. If you have a roommate, get together with your roommate and do house devotions. Like, figure out ways to be in the Word, seeking after the truth of God. And when you find truth, submit yourself to it. The third way is this, or the third, the third question is this of application. How then do we change? How does somebody change? Every single person changes, every single Christian, I should say, changes the same way that Jacob changed, and that is through an encounter with Jesus. And that happens through wrestling with His Word. Remember this, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That means that the Word of God that is spoken is the very Word of Jesus Christ Himself. So Jesus is not here physically to have a wrestling match with tonight, as cool as that may be, though you would end up with a dislocated hip. But we do wrestle with Him right here. We wrestle with Christ through the pages of His spoken Word. And friends, wrestle with Christ. And wait on Him, seek after Him, and as the sun rises, He will touch your heart and He will dislocate your hip, He will bruise you, and you will submit to Him. Submit to the truths of Christ that are found in His Scriptures. Now, I'm sure that there's uh, someone here, probably a number of people here, which, which um, <clears throat> submitting to Christ for them would mean sacrifice. Like there are sins in our life, there are things that we have adopted in our life that we cling on to, that we need. And to let it go, to walk away from that, to repent of that, and to, to, to follow after Christ is going to be sacrifice. Now that may not be iniquity in the sense of like 
external behavior. It may be in your job. It may be um, the, the embrace of relativism. It may be uh, the, the fact that if you stood for truth that you would take a, a, a punch to the chin, that there would be real persecution in your life, and that this could come with real sacrifice. Friends, I think what Jacob found, and I think this is why he was weeping, is that what he found was as he was hanging on to Christ, he was like, there was a sense in which he was saying, this is all I have. Like, if you don't bless me, if you don't show me favor, I've got nothing. We sing this song sometimes, all I have is Christ, which I know is a favorite of many of ours. Because when we get to that chorus, all I have is Christ, there's something in us that says, yeah, like, all I have is Christ. Like, I've sacrificed everything else. I've walked away from everything else. I've walked away from popularity. I've walked away from opportunity. I've walked away from love. I've walked away from, 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 uh, from, from fleshly joy. And now all I have is Christ, and I cling to Him, and I weep, not because it hurts, but because I found the only thing that matters in life. And we sacrifice as we submit to Christ. And we discover that the sacrifice is worth it. Is there, is there someone here who has a belly full of gas? You have a belly full of the wind of society, the lies that society has told us, and you, you, you have filled up on, on the various gospels of youth culture, or the gospel of relativism, or the gospel of prosperity, or whatever the gospel may be that you have been filling up on. And you have found no need, no desire to, to even gather with the saints. Like the gathering of the saints is not amazing to you. It's not the pulling back of the curtains of heaven because you already feel full. You come to the table on a regular basis, but it's just like ritual for you. You don't come hungry for Christ. You come full and satisfied on your own life. You come full and satisfied on your own works. Friends, allow Jesus to kick you in the belly this morning. To, to deflate your stomach full of air and to make you hungry for Him. Is there someone here who is starving for Christ? You have tasted what the, the, the diet that the world offers. You've tasted the diet that relativism offers, that forsaking the truth of God's Word offers. You've tasted it and it's nothing but cheese curls. Like it's, it's unsatisfying and 30 minutes later you've got to go back to get more and to be reminded of these things because you're starting to feel miserable. And you're tired of this routine of constantly having to refill up on the lies of society. And you've come here this morning starving. Feed off of Christ. Come to the table hungry this morning. Hungry for the righteousness of Christ that is His life and His act of obedience for you on your behalf. Come to the table hungry for the blood of His forgiveness, the, the blood that was shed for the remission of your sins. Come to the table to be united in Him and in His life so that you may taste the blessings of His resurrection, so that you may taste the feast that is to come. Are you hungry for Christ? Are you wrestling with Christ? Has Christ wounded you? Are you clinging to Christ? Can you say that the world offers me nothing? I once had gold, I once had silver. But the status of a king is nothing to me now. I would give it all up for Christ.
All I have is Christ. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you seal these truths in our heart. We ask that you allow us to wrestle, allow us to struggle, and we actually thank you for that, for your kindness to us. But God, we, we also thank you for the fact that you don't allow us to just continue to struggle forever and ever, but yet you touch our sides and you dislocate our hips. You bruise us so that we may submit to Christ. God, may we walk away from the lies that this world offers us. May we stand firm on the foundation of the truth of your word. Even if that means taking it to the chin, persecution, even if that means sacrifice, may we be able to say that all we have is Christ and we cling to him. It's in Jesus' name and for his sake that we pray. Amen.